For the past six months, we have dedicated our time, money and resources to dig deep into what was once one of England's most respected football clubs. Charlton Athletic, now one of a number of clubs owned by Belgian businessman Roland Duchatelet, share scouts, players and staff within a secretive and highly controversial network. We've got the accounts of former players, managers and board members, heard from network scouts and advisors, and even obtained never-before-seen emails sent from Duchatelet in a bid to find out exactly what has happened at the Valley. You're listening to Getting to Know the Network. In episode four of Getting to Know the Network, we attempt to answer two questions. The first is why were Charlton, with so much wealth at their disposal, relegated to English football's third tier at the end of the 2015-16 season? And the second is what did Roland Duchatelet want from Charlton Athletic when he bought the club in 2014? Let's start with Charlton's relegation. In 2015-16, Charlton had three different head coaches. There were Guy Luzon, Carol Fry and Jose Riga. All of them had worked within Duchatelet's network before. At this point, we should make it clear that of all the head coaches we've spoken to, Luzon was the least willing to be part of this project. Having initially turned down our interview request, Luzon finally agreed to speak in late September 2016. The interview was short and Luzon wasn't keen to give anything away. For example, here's his response when we asked him a fairly standard question about Thomas Treason's role in recruitment. I tell you honestly, I don't need it for this kind of interview. For what? For what to blame now me, he and he blame me, and it's not important. In truth, if not for the account of Luzon's assistant, David Martin, his spell in charge would have been difficult to cover at all. And we're not going to go through 2015-16 chronologically, because every head coach faced the same familiar problems. But we will start with Luzon's unveiling on January 15th, 2015. It was at that press conference that Charlton CEO Katumier said... You know, uh, uh, as soon as we went live with the sacking of uh, Bob Peters, within an hour had uh, 20 applications already. So uh, obviously there were several um, candidates. Uh, but uh, on Monday evening, late evening, it became clear that he was a favourite. So. Was he the only one you interviewed then for the job? No, but... Uh, this won't be a surprise to Charlton fans. But what's obvious is there was no interview process for the replacement of Bob Peters. Multiple sources, including Luzon himself, confirm that to us. And although it isn't proof of anything, it's worth pointing out that Luzon's wife, Dana, started following Charlton's official Twitter feed two weeks before Peters was even sacked. Duchatelet had stayed true to his network model, and having worked together previously at Standard Liège, Luzon was handed the job by the Charlton owner. Luzon was and remains good friends with Duchatelet, and his agent is Duchatelet's former advisor, Dudu Duhan. His wife, the aforementioned Dana Luzon, an Israeli television personality, would sit with Duchatelet at Liège home games. 
In fact, back in 2014, Mier even hosted meetings at the Valley that Charlton's media team were instructed to attend about a television series called Play Love Shoot that Dana Luzon was to host. The already stretched media team were told to work with a production company called Sancta on the reality TV show. It never aired. So what's clear is that Luzon and Duchatelet were close, perhaps closer than any of the other head coaches Duchatelet had employed at the Valley. And therefore, it's probably no surprise that Duchatelet allowed Luzon a certain amount of autonomy when it came to team selection. Here's Luzon. I tell you honestly, he never uh, take a decision or take part of the system or the squad or the, the eleven. Start eleven. Never. I don't know what happened with the other guys, but with me, it is a lie to say that. He, uh, it was and Luzon started well at Charlton. After taking over from Bob Peters, form improved. Luzon lost just six of his 19 matches in charge during the 2014-15 season, and Charlton finished 12th in the championship. People within the club even started to believe that there could still be hope for Duchatelet's model. Here's Damien Matthew. We finished 12th in the championship that year, so it, it's something that I personally, on a personal level take great professional satisfaction from because you, you knew that we hadn't struggled, we hadn't been fighting relegation, we'd actually finished on a high in, again, real tough and trying circumstances because all we ever wanted at Charlton, as proven by when we got promoted in League One, was to keep progressing and that's all we wanted. To progress, Charlton's owner and senior management needed to learn lessons and quite simply, they didn't. In episode two, we heard Chris Powell talk of the owner's interference and the emergence of Thomas Driesen. And in episode three, Bob Peters had warned Duchatelet that his squad was too thin and over-reliance on youth. These problems resurfaced during the 2015-16 season tenfold. And it was to be the summer transfer window ahead that would be the defining factor in what would be a disastrous season for Charlton. By this time, Van Osler had long since left his position as chief network scout and Duchatelet had sold Standard Liège. That meant that network advisors Christophe Lamois and Feriana Ferraguzzi were no longer options for Duchatelet. Neither was moving a number of players from Liège to Charlton like in the summer transfer window of the 2014-15 season. So in the summer of 2015, recruitment at Charlton was simple. So we had like a scout that's Luzon's first team head coach, David Martin, and he was right. Recruitment at Charlton was down to Driesen, Luzon, and the chief scout, Phil Chapel, who was growing increasingly frustrated and would soon leave for Fulham. And Driesen was having a bigger say on incomings than ever before. Here's Luzon again. He's the scout, he's uh, the one that uh, if he is not agree about uh, a player, we cannot sign him. He has a big say on this one. So. Uh, I can say that it was a lot of players uh, that we didn't agree on. Charlton signed Patrick Bauer, El Haji Ba, Ahmed Kashi, Christian Caballos, Zakaria Bergdich, and Nabi Saar that summer. Only Caballos, who was suggested by Chapel, was ever seen live, and the rest were all signed on the evidence of video clips. Only Bauer has gone on to make more than 25 appearances for the club. Not one of them had any experience of the championship, and four of them were 23 or under. And by now, there was a clear instruction that whether players had championship experience wasn't important, 
and investing in young foreign players was a key part of Duchatelet's recruitment strategy. Here's David Martin again. Charlton is a big club. The championship is a very hard big, and when you buy player or good player in one, two, three million pounds, you need to be sure that we invest in a good player. The point of view of the president wants to recruit player with, uh, that can be developed, that can after be be sold uh, in the Premier League or in the biggest club in the world. So you wanted also young players. So. Duchatelet wasn't thinking about recruiting a balanced championship squad for Charlton, with backup in every area. And Charlton's squad has consistently suffered as a result. Here's Carol Fry, who returned to Charlton to replace Luzon as head coach in October 2015. You see that after, I think, 46 games, top goal scorer was in six or seven goals. Yeah, then you know that there was a lack of quality up front, for sure. This, the season was started with Patrick Bauer and Nabi Sar and Kalu Diara to start a championship, even to play the championship with only three centre-backs, whom two of them uh, had no experience in, in, uh, in English football. I think that, that was a big, a big risk. The, the first time we were there, the side was a championship side. Experienced, British, good uh, foreign players. There came some players from uh, Standard Liège, but they did not play a big part in... Uh, in the survival. I think the fans at that moment started uh, with some doubts, but after some games, all these doubts were gone and the, the, the atmosphere was positive. Last time, from day one, it was toxic. And there were too much players not caring for the club. Mostly, most of them were happy to be playing in England or even not to be playing, but to be, be just to beat England. I never saw the fight the squad had in 2014. This this fight was not, and that belief was not on the pitch uh, last season. Perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise that there are question marks over characters in Charlton's dressing room. At Chris Powell's Charlton, the level of research and work that went into signing a player in comparison was so detailed and thorough. Peter Varney was executive vice chairman at Charlton between 2011 and 2012. He was part of the recruitment team that signed 18 players, including Royce Wiggins, Dale Stevens, Ben Hamer and Michael Morrison in the summer transfer window of 2011-12. We set up a team and in the early stages we met two, three times a week and that basically became the recruitment team. So that was Chris Powell, myself, Alex Dyer, Keith Peacock, Damian Matthew, Phil Chappell. Um, and basically we, we sat around two or three times a week and we worked out what our target list was. Effectively, we had a target list that was the top three in each of the positions and it quickly became clear that we were looking at a major you know, a major overhaul, sort of over 20 players coming in and virtually a similar number going out. So before the season had already started, a target list of three players in every position had been agreed with Powell and his team trusted to choose those players. And that list was decided upon after watching the player live and having a very detailed look at the personality of the players and whether they'd be a good fit for Charlton. Here's Damien Matthew. We know that player, how long he'd been at that club, how many games he'd played, even the salary that he was on, even the salary he was expected to earn. So we had a real good, great breakdown of the football side. We then were also privy to, well, was he married? Did he have a family? All these things that are really important, knowing the player even before he comes into the door. And then I understand the games involved where now 
there are so many players. There's so much great access to sort of video DVD evidence that it is right that you do actually look at that player, but it shouldn't be the benchmark for recruiting players just off DVD. So after agreeing on a top three in every position and finding out as much as they can about the player's personality and background, Varney would then go after them. My job then was to speak to clubs, to speak to agents about our number one target and, and have a position where if we could, as soon as the season ended and the transfer window opened, we were in a position to, to move for those targets. And I think the key, when you ask the question, why was it successful, it was really all in the planning. If you plan properly and you set your targets out early and you get in early, you're less likely to be in a competitive situation with other clubs. And I think that's what we did. I think a lot of people work a lot of long hours, particularly people like Phil Chappell. And obviously Chris was very decisive about what he wanted. The reality was we were set a target, which was £4 million, and we'd produced a matrix, which was, again, part of the reason I think the whole thing was successful. So in summary, I think it was... The fact that it was planned out over a long period of time, people put a lot of effort into the meetings. Well, we didn't always get our number one targets, um, but we made sure that come that window, we knew exactly who we were going for and went and got them. In 2015 at Duchatelet's Charlton, scouts weren't even going to games to watch the players they wanted to sign. They were watching clips and DVDs and simply making judgments. Nothing on character, nothing on background, simply clips. It's clear that the detail and the planning that went into signing players was far, far different after Roland du Châtelet bought the club in 2014. And there's certainly a strong argument that it's been the most important factor in why Charlton now find themselves in League One. Here's Damien Matthew. Last season, in the calibre of players that were coming through and the, and the timing of the players coming through, that you'd obviously look to do things at the right time in May, June, and it wasn't getting done till July, August. You, you knew that then it wasn't going to work. And every single one of Duchatelet's head coaches that we've spoken to has complained about a thin squad that relies too heavily on youth, including Bob Peters. For a manager, it's not easy because you need a certain amount of players to keep your players fresh. I think I played nearly uh, 25 games with the Cubs. It was nearly 30 games with the same squad and with the mm. same, nearly with the same 11, 12 players. So at the end of the... At the day, the players were naked, and then you saw the other teams, they were, they were strengthening uh, their team. Guy Luzon says it was the main problem he faced. Short squad. When we have a, a normal squad, when we start the season, we, we made a great uh, result. Uh, when uh, we have some injured, we have short squad, and with short squad, you cannot uh, success, uh, succeed in this league. Assistant David Martin backs that up. Uh, I think... We had like a uh, bad luck with a lot of injuries very soon in the season and uh, the squad was, was too short. So we had to play with a lot of very young players that were not ready at this moment to play in the high level, you know. Charlton's recruitment policy left the squad wafer thin and far too reliant on young players for the championship. In fact, in 2015-16, nine players under the age of 21 appeared in the championship for Charlton, with the likes of Carlan Ahern Grant and Harry Lennon appearing over 20 times. Charlton were headed for relegation and the fans were angry. In fact, by the time the inexperienced Carol Fry had replaced Guy Luzon and labelled interim manager, protests were forming. Yeah, we'd seen some um, protests in the run-up to Christmas 2015. Um, we'd seen the, the questioning of, by the um, 
black and white campaign as to try and get the ownership to spell out um, in black and white um, exactly what they were trying to do at Charlton. Um, and that got quite good support, really. That voice is Rick Everett, a Charlton fan for over 40 years, editor of the fanzine Voice of the Valley and a founding member of the protest group called CARD or the Coalition Against Roland du Châtelet. What really changed was two things which happened around Christmas 2015. Um, I think it was on Christmas Eve itself, the video of Catherine Mayer's dis- uh, uh, conference uh, discussion in Dublin was discovered. Um, and there were some quite shocking things in that, which I think really galvanised people. People really saw how far Catherine Mayer was from understanding what she was doing as chief executive, or at least how far she was from doing anything that they could relate to. The video Everett refers to was of Mia at a web summit in Dublin. Here's what she said. Fans don't see themselves as customers. Uh, and so whenever I now get very friendly emails from fans, they say, get out of our club. So it's not the, the shareholders club. Um, I think it's quite funny because they say they pay. Obviously, the ticketing system is one third of our revenue stream. Um, but they, they go to their restaurants with their family every week and they go to the cinema. But if they're not satisfied with the, with the product, will they go and scream to the people in charge of it? No, they don't. But they do it with a football club. And that's very weird because they feel a sense of ownership of a football club. And, and, and my proposition would be a unique kind of real football kind of um, fan experience. Uh, and see the hopefully the next stars of the, of the Premier League, which we will have a play um, for Charlton in the first team and then probably sell on to the Premier League. There was now a settled view that De Châtelet would have to go. And, th- and when we met for the first time, which was uh, in a pub in, in Charlton um, in the middle of January that month, um, we didn't have a name. And I think the name was very important because, um, and we did discuss this at some length, it wasn't just a, you know, a nice acronym. It was the coalition against Roland de Châtelet. We decided that getting rid of de Châtelet was now the only way of resolving these problems. The coalition was made of various protest groups and fans that knew the club well who were worried for its future. They organised safe, law-abiding protests to vent the frustration of fans and called upon volunteers to help them. One of the volunteers was Heather Alderson. Like most fans, um, Charlton has been an incredibly important part of my life. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's more than a football club. It's, um, it's something that's very important to the community around in South East London. Um, I feel very close to it. Um, and I've got huge admiration for the supporters of Charlton in as much as the fact that we kind of got our club back in the, in the 90s. And I just thought I couldn't sit on my hands and allow this to happen to our club in terms of the kind of the destruction that was already happening. I was getting increasingly disconnected, you know, it, it was still, well, and still is, you know, it's absolutely my club, it's, it's part of, of my life, it's, it's um, you know, I was supporting every kick on the pitch, but there was, you know, more and more players that I didn't feel were part of how Charlton had presented itself to me over the last the previous years and things were just getting worse I mean that to me was the time in which what we now <laughs> called alternative facts were starting to be um, 
really told by the club. I mean, all the time saying, oh, yeah, every decision we've made has been the right decision. Everything's been moving in the right direction. Whereas actually every bit of evidence said exactly the opposite. Uh, it was just getting worse and worse. Alderson would later become a key member of the coalition against Rolando Châtelet. Despite a succession of managers with no championship experience and relegation looking a certainty, fans were being told there was nothing wrong. If you assumed that their objectives were to be successful on the pitch and, and to attract further support, the stupidity of the things that they did and how far they were from understanding what the club was and what it could be, um, because... We'd shown in the 1990s, we built the club up together, supporters, directors, staff, volunteers. We'd built the club up. We'd uh, reinvented the club to a large extent, uh, collectively. And all that was now being squandered and thrown away by people who didn't appear to understand what they were doing. Or if they did understand what they were doing, it wasn't something that any of us wanted. And they were angered further still when it was revealed Peter Varney was asking to meet Mier and Du Châtelet to talk about a potential takeover of the club, only to be ignored. Clearly the fans were not happy, the, the support was declining. Um, they might, must have had a financial effect on the club and it needed a complete radical rethink, I believed, of the way the club was going to move forward. Otherwise, from what I could see, and bear in mind this was all started at a time that Charlton was in the Championship, um, and it's on record. I was saying that I felt that you know this was a club that if something didn't change was heading into League One again. And you can imagine from a personal point of view, mm-hmm. um, nobody really understands the amount of work that goes into turning a club round. Um, you know, so much personal time and effort had gone into turning around the club I supported for whatever it was at the time over 55 years. I just wanted to see if if they were interested in in passing the ownership over to somebody else who would have a different a different approach to how it was dealt with a more domestic type of approach there was an investor it wasn't a consortium it wasn't a group of local businessmen who were scrapping a few thousand pounds together it was a very wealthy substantial individual um who was interested in taking the club over and giving it an opportunity to progress back to where it was a few years ago that would have been done in the right way um, there would have been, the truth is, there would have been a new management team which, you know, was, was, was ready to go. Obviously, I don't want to go into the circumstance of that, but I think it would have been, it would have been well received by the supporters, which I think is important because it gets everybody back on side and having confidence. I think when you go through a recruitment process and the end of that process is always that the manager is Belgian, then people don't have the same confidence. However, despite the opportunity of investment over a three-month period between August and November in 2015, it emerged that Catrimier had cancelled and rescheduled three meetings with Varney in an email chain published by fanzine Voice of the Valley. Varney is unsure to why. I think, I think the only answer I can give is that a lot of the comments that have been made by the owners over the period of time has been that they're not interested in the, in the history of the club you know, all the people involved in the history of that club. So you have to make the assumption that if that's their view, then they don't see any merit in having any conversations with anybody that's ever worked, that's ever worked for the club. For me, this isn't, you know, this isn't about me. It isn't about them. It's about, it's really about the club. And, you know, you cannot, you know, you're watching the dismantling of the supporter base. Um, And... 
think that it's not about will I and will they meet me? Something, you know, something's going to have to happen at some time. People will not keep pumping millions into a life-making business, or they'll go the other route and start cutting costs. So sooner or later, somebody's going to talk to somebody about Charles, whether it's me. Who knows? Um, the ball's in their court. They're the owners. It's their house. They decide whether they want to put it on the market and whether they want to accept an offer for their house, and I can't influence that. And it was the belief that perhaps there was an alternative that saw support for Card grow. Effectively, by January 2016, the club was now at war with its own fans. On January the 13th, 2016, Carol Fry, who still had the title interim manager, was sacked after a run of two wins from 14 matches, with Charlton sitting in 23rd place. We've heard from multiple sources that upon being sacked, Fry urged Catumier to change the philosophy at Charlton and appoint a British manager, something that Fry himself confirmed. I told her that, uh, on the, because it was over the phone, and I told her that it was time, that I thought it was time to, to go British. Who am I to give advice? Because uh, I was a manager that did not succeed in, uh, in his duty. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I, 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 I do care because uh, I was not... Uh, like I was a happy man leaving Charlton. No, I, I, care, I really cared and I did everything I could. His suggestion was ignored. An Upest manager, Naboisan Vignevich, had been lined up to replace Fry. But a last-minute change of mind meant that Jose Rica would return to the club the day after Fry was sacked on January the 14th. Riga never looked like saving Charlton from relegation in his second spell. Fan protests led by Card grew and grew. Riga understood why. I, I understand one thing, you know, in football, uh, the fans, the, 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 the values of a club uh, are more important than the coach, uh, than the player, than uh, everything. I mean, because most of the time the supporters are there before we arrive. They will be there after. So for me, what I try to do all the time is to respect them first and to ask the player to do the same. I understood immediately that it was a big frustration, for sure. Roland Duchatelet didn't, however, and released the following statement on March 15th after thousands of black and white beach balls were thrown onto the pitch by protesters during a televised match against Middlesbrough at the Valley. Dear fans... Last Sunday, some individuals did not come to the Valley to watch the game and support their team, but came to create disorder on the pitch and interfere with the players in the game. Disorder which is, allegedly, needed to drive change in ownership and management. Whom would they expect the club to be sold to? How long would a sales process take? Is it easier to sell the club when it is in League One rather than Championship? Some individuals seem to want the club to fail. The following day, Head of Communications Mel Baroni, who had been in her position for 46 days, resigned. And inevitably, after using three different head coaches and 37 different players, the season ended with Charlton being relegated to the third tier of English football, finishing with just 40 points and the worst goal difference in the league. No single factor was to blame, rather a succession of bad decisions, appointments and failures had left the club rotting from the inside out. The club's relationship with its fans was beyond repair. Having been consistently lied to and even insulted, many felt the club hated them. Even so, to evaluate his spell at Charlton, 
It's always been our aim to talk to Roland du Châtelet and give him the right to reply to getting to know the network. We have left countless voicemails. Here's one. Welcome to voicemail. This is the voicemail of... Roland du Châtelet. Please leave your message after the tone. Thank you for your call. Hello, Mr. Duchatelet. It's Jimmy Stone, uh, producer of Getting to Know the Network. We're still very interested in talking to you. Um, if you'd let us know either way, if you'd be able to speak, we'd be very grateful. Thanks very much. Bye. We've sent dozens of text messages and emails, and finally we got this emailed response from his assistant, Ander Hart, with Mr. Duchatelet CC'd in. It reads, My apologies for only coming back to you now. I've discussed internally... And unfortunately, Roland does not give any interviews on football. Thanks for your understanding. With best regards, Anne. Although the answer was expected, it was a frustrating response. As in the past 12 months, Mr Duchatelet has conducted at least nine interviews on the subject of the football clubs he owns. We also contacted Catherine Mier. She politely and promptly refused our interview request. Despite both Duchatelet and Mier's reluctance to talk to us at this point, we believe we've spoken to enough people involved in Duchatelet's network to pass judgment on his tenure as Charlton's owner. So here we go. Given that Duchatelet has never taken the time to really explain his model in great detail, it's important to us that by the end of this episode, you completely understand exactly what he wanted to do with Charlton when he bought them in January 2014. Jean-Francois de Sartre was technical director at Stand Liège between 2011 and 2014. He strongly believes in Duchatelet's idea and was tasked with helping find clubs that could become part of Duchatelet's network. When he, he took uh, Standard de Liège in 2011, I think, mm -hmm. we start to, with the idea to, to have some collaboration with uh, other clubs. Uh, around uh, Standard Liège. That first sentence is actually quite important because what has become absolutely clear to us while working on this project is that this network model was created for the benefit of Standard Liège. Dessart continues. So we went to to Germany, to, to Holland, because it's near, near, near Liège, and we, uh, we tried to find collaboration with, with some clubs to, to exchange uh, experience, but also maybe uh, to exchange uh, players, because all these clubs were not at the same level as Tarda. Uh, they were they were playing in in first league or second league in uh, first league or second league in, in Holland and second league and third league in, in Germany, and we we meet this person to to speak with them and to, to, to try to find a collaboration. From, I believe in this business model. Uh, I think now it it's can be a, a great opportunity for, for a club to, to, to share the experience, to share the, the knowledge with uh, insights. A lot of clubs at different level, and you have the model of uh, Udinese and, and uh, Watford. So I think it's uh, a good model, and personally, I believe in, in, in that system. And you can see now more and more teams are looking with some collaboration. For example, here in Belgium, uh, as Monaco just buy a, a club of second league in Belgium. 
because they need they need uh, teams where to put their young players, the, the, the players of the academy. They are not ready to play in the first team, or they don't have the time to develop the young players in the first team. So they they have to find uh, another system where how to develop the, the their young players and. When you are the boss in different teams, it's easier for for you to say, okay, my principal of Monaco, uh, a young player of Monaco, is not ready to play in my first team, and I send him in, okay, in, in Bruges, in, in Belgium, to, to for his development. And after one or two years, he will come back in in Monaco, and we play in the first team of Monaco. So I believe really in this system. Former Chief Network Scout Mark Van Osselaer was also involved in the process. He wants to do a, a link okay, with, a, with a few clubs at different level. It was a good idea because a lot of big clubs, they have small clubs just behind. Because you can take the young players and say, okay, he has not the level for, for, of the network. Okay, Then after, uh, he began with the, the, the last club. And after the, the second, and like this, okay, and he grew up, he can grow up with different teams. It's what he want, wanted to do. For me, it's a good idea. Me, I think he chose Charlton because it's London. <laughs> and it was the club who was possible to, to buy him directly, okay? Then in England, there is a lot of, uh, of money, then of possibility, okay, and the level is good. And it was exactly between Standard de Liège, okay, then they will play a Europa League, and Alcorcon. Charlton's purpose in his network was to be a club that could help nurture players that could potentially one day play for Liège or be sold to the Premier League. At the same time, Duchatelet made it clear he didn't want Charlton to lose money. Charlton's main ambition was to break even. Duchatelet aimed to do this by selling Charlton's best players. He was uncharacteristically open about this. Here's what he said during an interview with BBC London in March 2014. At the end of uh, every season, you have to count the, the money and see whether the money you got in is enough to pay for the expenses. And uh, as you know, few clubs achieve in doing so. Uh, I intend to do so. This club also needs to, uh, to make some money at a given point. And it's not to be excluded that some players will be sold from Charlton. The most financially viable way for Charlton to run was to promote players from their academy into the first team early while moving unwanted players from around his network of clubs, making use of the loan market at the same time. The best academy products would be sold for profit in a bid to help Charlton break even. As long as Charlton weren't relegated, their league position was of no great concern to Duchatelet. So from the outset, Duchatelet made it clear that Charlton's philosophy would change and that the club would have to work within his model. However, upon his arrival, what he didn't do was explain his model in any kind of detail to anyone at the club. There were short initial meetings, but at no stage did he sit down with anyone and discuss his strategy and how Charlton would fit into it. Former Chief Network Scout Mark Van Osler still believes the network could have been a positive thing for Charlton, and he's not alone. But to Châtelet's reluctance to trust anyone but himself or his closest allies has been a huge problem. His idea is a good idea. Communication is difficult, okay, and inside, okay, the organization, it's not enough. For me, it's not enough. It doesn't control, because if you just put one or two person, okay, of you, and just say, okay, we decide with three or four person, 
but uh, there is, I don't know, maybe a hundred person who work in, uh, in Charlton. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. Or, or yes, it's possible, but you have to respect everybody. Respect and put them in the project, okay? And explain them. Because I think he never explained the project. I, me, I'm sure if you explain to, the, to everybody, okay? Okay, they, they have not to accept. I, I, I understand. But they, they can, they, they understand. Okay, if you say, okay, we, we put, for example, four or five players of Charlton, okay, with experience, and young players just around them, okay, and we play the middle, another beach club, and uh, we just play, for example, the, the, the tenth places in the, in the top, okay, if it's better, it's good, if it's 12 or 13, it's not a problem, okay, and we have to, to put you on the academy, okay, and construct and build, build the club correctly, Okay, they understand. And the relationship to Châtelet and George with the supporters of the network clubs has obviously been another issue. No effort was made to explain his idea and how it would change Charlton. Instead, supporters were told that they would have to put up with the shortfalls of Du Châtelet's network. Attending Charlton games, meeting Charlton fans and getting to know the club was never of any interest to Du Châtelet, but even his closest allies recognised the naivety of this stance. Here's Jean-François de Sartre again. Okay, football is a special, special business, and uh, uh, because you have emotion, you have the, the reaction of the fan, and you have to take uh, care of the fan. You have to take care of their opinion, and it's the big difference uh, if you compare with a normal business. And certainly, in Standard de Liège, it was. Uh, underestimate this, this situation. And Van Osseler agrees and believes Du Châtelet underestimated how difficult owning a football club might be. The problem is always the public. Because, you know, Charlton is a historic club. Standard is the same. Okay, then it's very difficult with, uh, with the fans. It's not like a society. A society, if you have a problem with a person outside, it's not a problem. Or inside, it's not a problem because you can... You can uh, have, uh, you can put order, you yeah. can control. Yeah, with the fans, it's impossible. He, he likes football, okay? I think he, he's sure that football is like a society, you know, it's like business. But it's not the same business because it's very, very, very different. And it, you, you cannot control like, like a society. I'm sure he thought it was possible, but it, it's not the case. It's very, very, very different. Yeah, because the employee is not like a society. You pay an employee, he's, uh, he's happy, it's finished, he do his job. Football, football is very different. Players, they, they always want to, to move. Uh, agents always want money. Uh. Charlton's decline under Roland du Châtelet can really be seen from the 24th of June 2015, the day he sold Standard Liège. Du Châtelet, a big Liège fan, never intended to sell the Belgian club, but bowed to intense supporter pressure, as journalist Bart Lagay points out. Fans were even breaking into his house, coming into his office and threatening him physically. And he said, I don't mind for myself, but I mind for my family and I can't stay go on like that. That's why quit standard Liège, otherwise he would have stayed in Liège. Charlton became top of a smaller pyramid and could no longer receive players from Liège. And the quality of player arriving at Charlton since Du Châtelet sold Liège 
is also noticeably different. If you compare the 2014 signings of internationals like Igor Fetokele, Johan Kudmundsen, Yoni Boyens and Frédéric Boulot to 2015, there's a noticeable drop in ability. In 2015, with Liège suddenly out of the network, the signings of Patrick Bauer, El Haji Bar, Ahmed Kashi, Christian Caballos and Bergdich and Saar represent a different standard of player completely. While players who don't feature for Charlton, such as Marco Dmitrovic, find themselves at Alcacorn and St. Truden. For Charlton, any potential benefit to the network model had disappeared with standard Liège. Those who know Roland Duchatelet all say the same about him, that he's incredibly intelligent, a great businessman, and his idea is good, and we wouldn't dispute any of that. But what's also clear is that Duchatelet has never got close to getting the right people in the right positions to make his network work. Thomas Driesen, for example, has played a big part in Charlton's decline, yet was and continues to be a trusted member of Duchatelet's inner circle. Duchatelet's unwillingness to trust anyone but himself and his unproven allies has cost the club dearly. He's a guy very smart. Now, if he don't take a smart, uh, lot of uh, smart decisions regarding football, this, this, this is not something, not normal, to find an owner of club to take wrong decisions. That's the voice of his former advisor and Israeli agent, Dudu Duhan. He continues. You see when the people in Watford, they, they know football, they took Watford, and you see the, the results. So they come from background of football, you understand? They are live, they are eat, they are grow in football. It's the way I am. Mm-hmm. I don't know nothing else in life instead football. This is what I know. The Châtelet, for his luck, he knows so many things. He's a very, very smart guy. Now, regarding his decision of football, I cannot tell you uh, it's something very special because so much people, so much uh, rich people like him in the world, they take football clubs and they, they, they're not success. So I don't think money is the guarantee for successful in football. To manage a football club like Charlton and like Standard Liège is not so easy things to do because it's a, it's a charity, it's a, it's a, it's a fans, it's a, it's a life, you know. There is life behind every stone in the in the training ground, in the in the stadium, in the in the streets of the fans when they are walking to the games. So it's not uh, easy to to manage this kind of club. And if you not realize, and if you don't understand how much the the, the community and the people uh, are important in this uh, situation, then it's very difficult. But I can say to you also that um, the Châtelet is coming to, to buy the, this club because nobody else wants to buy it. Cal Fry also believes Du Châtelet may have underestimated the task at hand. I know he bought Charlton as he bought his other clubs with a very good intention to make it uh, a family, family club, more than a football club. Um, but I, I suppose he, he underestimated um, the emotional side in Engl- of, of, of English football. Um, I think he really un- underestimated that. Um, but there is no, no doubt that all of his intentions are very positive to to, to move on with the club and to make the club. Uh, better and uh, turning in, turning it into an even more family club and more into a football club. That, that's his, that's for sure his, his idea. 
That last point is telling. Fry wouldn't know that long before Roland du Châtelet arrived, Charlton were known as one of the great family clubs in England. In reality, du Châtelet has done the opposite. He has ripped the values out of a club that is important to his community. Ever since arriving, the club's history and the club's fans have meant very little to him. And whatever his intentions, du Châtelet's idea and his implementation of it has left Charlton as a shadow of the club they once were. His former midfielder, Bradley Pritchard, it is such a shame, and this, I'm just echoing things that people say all the time. It, it, every time I talk about Charlton, uh, fans will say, what have they done to our club? People who know the club will say, what have, what have they done to the, to, to the club? Charlton and Orion, they seem to be everyone's second and third favourite team. There's always a sentimental attachment that everyone has with these two clubs. They're so family-oriented and so ingrained in, in their local communities that when when the club gets transformed by factors that actually have nothing to do with the community, then it's it's very, very tough for the fans to, to, to understand it because ultimately you've got people coming in, doing what they want, and then they, they may eventually leave and leave the club as a shadow of what it, of what it was. Matt Wright, a Charlton fan, worked for the club for 13 years, leaving three months before Du Châtelet arrived. The greatest disappointment, I think, of, of where the club is at the moment and the, the current situation is, is the sort of the missed potential and, and the opportunity that he failed to take because he believed he knew better. Whoever came in just needed to care about the club. The, the, you know, there were various areas where they could get you know, quick wins, and they did that. But there were lots of other areas that, that were struggling along that all they had to do really was to better support those areas and those people. Whereas instead, they sort of, they came in with a wrecking ball. You know, they, they sold Kermagan, made no effort to repair any of the, uh, the damaged relationships between the board and, and other key players. And then they started sort of messing around on the football side and imposing players on the manager, pressuring the manager in terms of players and formations and systems. Once everyone sees that, and people in the club know what's going on, people outside the club know what's going on. And once everyone sees that, the staff, the supporters, and, and you're not honest about that, and the fans see that you're not being honest, then you, then you lose that trust. You've really got a major challenge to win it back. It's a challenge the, the current regime doesn't really seem interested in or committed to, to, to winning that trust back. You know, they're, they're, they're happy issuing platitudes and so forth, but there's, there's no real commitment behind those words, it, it doesn't seem to me. See, I think, I think child fans have realistic ambitions. I don't think we, as child fans, think we have a, a sort of God-given right to be in the Premier League but we think that we can and should be challenging for that, um, that we should have that sort of ambition um, to play in the top flight. Um, I think that's lacking at the moment. I think most fans would say that they want the club to operate financially responsibly and sustainably, um, even if he is, a, you know, even if the owners are untold riches. People talk about the network. I, I, I can see some, you know, I can see some positives and possibilities and advantages in having a network of clubs to, to be able to call on, but the way it's been carried out, you know, the, the appointment of unqualified staff, inexperienced staff, in key positions, the, the complete disdain for supporters, you know, just means that ripped apart a club that, that just needed a bit of care and, and, and love and attention. Charlton's fans were never going to accept Du Châtelet's disregard of what the club stood for and his disdain for the people that have kept it alive. And it's not surprising. At the time of writing, 
It's more than likely that Charlton will finish in their lowest league position since 1926. The club have been through eight different managers in under three years and have used 94 different players since Duchatelet took over the club. The club's average win percentage since Duchatelet bought the club has been just 29.7%. Duchatelet has often hidden behind the investment he's made at Charlton. But it's expected accounts to be revealed later this month will show the club owe around £58 million in loans to Duchatelet and are actually in the most debt of the club's history. In 2013-14, Charlton's average attendance was 16,143. This season, the official figure stands at 11,130, but that number even includes thousands of season ticket holders who are refusing to attend. Charlton's average attendance is the lowest it's been in 20 years. And this will be Duchatelet's legacy at Charlton, his end game. So many have turned their back on the club they love, refusing to come back under the current regime. Something that pains former manager and club legend Chris Powell. I really don't want them to, to desert the club. I really don't want them to. Their, their patience is being tested to the absolute maximum. And if I was one of them, I, I, I just wouldn't know what way to turn because they're not being told what the plans are. They're not being told if there's going to be improvements on the field. I mean, they've seen it happen to many other clubs and now it's happening to them. And it's it's heartbreaking. I don't want them to turn their back on their club. I can see why many have. I can see it. I can see why, because their, their patience and their money is almost being taken for granted because it's become... It's not become... It is a laughing stock at the moment, Charlton. I just don't get it. And as a fan, I wouldn't understand it. The club have to bridge a gap now because that gap's widening. They're losing fans. They're losing supporters. There's fans there that have been through the mill with that club, and I'm sure when they left the Valley, they thought, well, it won't get any worse than this, playing at Selhurst and, and, and playing at Upton Park. But it did, but they came through it. So I kind of think they'll get through it again. I hope they do, and I know they will. Because that's what Charlton is. That's what the supporters are. They stay and stick together, and they get through it. And I think that's the only thing I can say to them now. Get through it by hook or by crook. Get through it. You know, you're proud of your club, and it must be very hard to see what's been going on. But you'll come through it, as you always do, and always will. 